Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to the second live episode of Surviving the Survivor today, uh, the podcast that brings you the very best guests in all of true crime. And tonight, I'm bringing you three fierce women who are going to break down this very tragic case for you. All eyes are going to be on a Stanford, Connecticut courtroom this week as the trial for Michelle Traconis gets underway. She's one of two people still facing uh, murder charges in the death of Connecticut mom of five, Jennifer Farber Dulos. Uh, the trial was supposed to start at the beginning of the week. There have been some uh, wranglings with the jury that we're going to talk about, and uh, it is set to get underway tomorrow. And if all goes well, we will bring you opening statements with Jonas Spillbore, who I'm about to uh, introduce. Uh, we did that, of course, in the uh, Charlie Adelson trial. Now, it's been almost five years since Jennifer Farber Dulos um, vanished back on May 24th, 2019. A judge just declared her dead. Uh, Michelle Traconis the girlfriend of the ex-husband is accused of conspiring with the ex-husband, Fotis Dulos. So there's a lot to take in here uh, to murder Jennifer and then cover up the crime. Uh, as I said, the a body has not been found to this day, despite the murder taking place back in 2019. Uh, best guest tonight for the second show. And they're among as good as best gets best guests can get, which is hard to say. Wendy Murphy, she serves as adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law Boston, where she also co-directs the Women and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. She's a former visiting scholar at Harvard Law, and uh, in 1992, she founded the first organization in the nation to provide pro bono legal services to crime victims, a pioneer in the field. Next up, John Spillbore. And when they saw each other um, on this link tonight, they, uh, they're they old friends. They've known each other. They both used to do tons of media, still do quite a bit. Jonna is also an attorney, popular, outspoken, her words, not mine. She's a columnist, a legal analyst who appears regularly on Fox News Channel, Fox Business Network, and all the others. She also has a radio show uh, in the New York Hudson Valley. And last but not least, you've got Ann Jeanette Levy, a correspondent and host for the Law and Crime Network. She's covered a lot of high-profile cases, including Stephen Avery, Brooke Skyler Richardson, and most recently, the trials of Kyle Rittenhouse. Well, not really most recently, but kind of most recently. Kyle Rittenhouse and the former Minneapolis disgraced police officer, Derek Chauvin, who was uh, just stabbed multiple times um, behind bars. Um, before, I have a little story put together, but before we get to that, just kind of going around the horn, Jonna, this is a uh, very convoluted case, goes back to 2019. Um, we covered the Dan Markell and still are Charlie Adelson, Donna Adelson. Uh, that is a story about a divorce gone bad, a custody battle. This is not too dissimilar. What do you make of it from a macro perspective? Prosecution has an uphill battle with this one. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. here again, we've got the girlfriend of who is likely the main suspect and the main suspect is pushing up daisies. Nobody, very little evidence. There's going to be uh, uh, they're going to they're going to have to prove that there was a murder, not a manslaughter, not a self-defense, not a they're going to have to prove that first. 
And then they're going to be have to prove that the girlfriend, Michelle Draconis, conspired along with her now dead boyfriend to commit that murder. That is not going to be easy. That is a zig and a zag. They've got their work cut out for them. Uh, Wendy, Ned Smith, friend of the show, funny guy, kind of dating you. I remember watching Wendy on Chris Matthews show during the Clinton impeachment. Is this true? Oh, yeah, it was Clinton Lewinsky 24-7. And, and boy, did we cover every angle and every body part. Yeah, uh, I imagine that you probably did. Um, I was going to say something about Chris Matthews, but I will hold and bite my tongue He's on that nice one. But, really no, he is. Guy. I will he say is that. Nice um, so, Wendy, what uh, what's your take? Do you agree? Is this going to be an uphill battle? You know, and I, I'm just kind of digging into the case now, but just looking at it um, sort of, you know, in a cursory fashion, it does seem like the state's going to have to bring everything they have to convict her. Do you agree? Well, they should bring everything they have. That's their job. <laughs> uh, you know, I often disagree with Shauna, and it's always very pleasant to do that because she's so smart and it makes me look good when I get the other angle in. Um, <laughs> I, I you know, I think this is actually a very strong case, not surprisingly, <clears throat> notwithstanding that there's no body. And I say that in part because it's been so long since she, quote unquote, disappeared. I usually object when the defense drags cases out because it makes prosecutions harder. But in this case, it's helpful because, of course, the jury's going to know she's dead. Uh, where where else would she be after four years? Um, and I think, oh, two, five years, right? Did I do the math? Five years. Um, yeah. And and in that sense, I don't agree that it's going to be difficult to prove that she's murdered because not only is she nowhere to be found, we have evidence that a grave was dug we have a, by people involved. We have blood everywhere that you'd expect to see blood if someone was murdered. I mean, from the garage to her car to some of the items in the bags that uh, this woman was involved in helping to throw out in the aftermath of the crime. Um, I think the, the, that the community is looking to hold someone accountable because they're mad that the real killer killed himself so that, you know, we got to have our pound of flesh and she offers it up to them. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence against her just in terms of consciousness of guilt. She lied. If, if you're really innocent, and that's really the challenge for the prosecution in this case, because she's charged with conspiracy, not so much the murder, but conspiracy, meaning she was somehow involved in the planning and the cover-up and the execution, and the hiding of evidence, et cetera. Really what, what the jury's going to be expecting is, um, some proof from the defense that she was an innocent dupe, that she had this terrible boyfriend, she got sucked in against her will, she knew nothing, and she was just a ride-along. That's not the case. The prosecution has a lot of evidence showing not only that she was directly involved, but that she was in the car when evidence was being dumped, and that her DNA was found on some stuff, not a lot of stuff, but some stuff, and then she lied to police. I mean, you can't, you, you might not feel like this is an overwhelming case, but when all this stuff stacks up against her and you got nothing good to say about her in this case, I mean, everything is bad for her. You have to believe that it rises to the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'll grant you that. And conspiracy cases aren't easy. But mm -hmm. It's, I don't think it looks very good for her at all. There you go. Two opposing views. We'll dig into it more. 
Uh, you see Jennifer Jansen here says there's video of Michelle Traconis putting license plates down a storm drain. Uh, this is true. Look at this Boston Sarah where Wendy Murphy hails from. Hi, SCS Nation. Loving the all, I'll say women panel. You get in trouble for saying lady these days. I would never say that. Um, and Jeanette Levy, what uh, what peak? Look at this analytical Blarney uh, gifting ten memberships. But and Jeanette, uh, from your perspective as a media person, what piques your interest about this case? Well, I you know what's interesting to me is the fact that she hasn't made a deal since Fotis Doulis died by suicide. Uh, I, I can't believe because I, I do think Wendy has great points. I think there is some strong circumstantial evidence. Yes, there's surveillance video of her in the truck, uh, you know, the trash bags in the truck with the DNA and the zip ties and Jennifer's clothing. Also, she's quoted in a warrant as saying that Jennifer's body had been in that vehicle at some point in time. So that to me, I mean, cut a deal. Maybe she tried to, but he's gone. And if he's the main actor, cut a deal for tampering with physical evidence. And, and, but maybe they've got something more that shows that she was more more deeply involved in this conspiracy um, to commit the murder than, than she would like to admit or her defense attorneys would like to admit. So I, I think that statement right there um, really hurts her. The fact that she knew, unless she can provide some type of evidence that she found out after the fact and was scared or something to that effect. But um, I would find that pretty hard to believe. Yeah, it's interesting because it looks like STS Nation is split. Carol W. says, Jonna is so right. She's been declared dead, but the manner of death has not been declared. And that declaration just coming in October. Uh, the COE, the chief of everything, who is a woman, Wendy Murphy, my wife, uh, edited this package. Let's take a look at it. It kind of fills in. Gives you background on the case. Uh, let's watch together. Jennifer Farber Dulos was Jennifer Farber Dulos was a mom of five who suddenly disappeared five years ago. Jennifer was last seen at around eight a.m. Jennifer Farber Dulos was a mom of five who suddenly disappeared five years ago. Jennifer was last seen at around eight a.m. on May twenty fourth, twenty nineteen, when she dropped her children off at a New Canaan Country School in Connecticut. Minutes later, a neighbor's security camera caught her returning home. But then Jennifer missed two doctor's appointments. And that evening, her friends and her nanny reported her missing after no one could get a hold of her. Jennifer was never seen again. A judge officially declared her dead just this past October. Jennifer and Jennifer Farber Dulos was a mom. I don't know who why suddenly it's doing disappeared that, I don't know why it's doing that. So uh, we'll try that again in a little while, but uh, we can fill in all the blanks there. So Jennifer Farber Dulos was a mom of five who suddenly disappeared five years ago. Jennifer was last seen at around 8 a.m. on May 24th, 2019, when she dropped her children off at a New Canaan country school in Connecticut. Minutes later, a neighbor security camera caught her returning home. But then Jennifer missed two doctor's appointments and that evening, her friends and her nanny reported her missing after no one could get a hold of her. Jennifer was never seen again. A judge officially declared her dead just this past October. Jennifer and her ex-husband, Fotis Dulos, were knee-deep in divorce and child custody proceedings when she went missing. Police believe Jennifer was killed in a violent attack at her home in New Canaan, Connecticut. 
Police suspect that her ex-husband had been lying in wait for her when she got home. Police believe that Fotis and his girlfriend Michelle Traconis then drove to Hartford to get rid of garbage bags with items that had Jennifer's blood on them. Ex-husband Fotis Dulos and his girlfriend Michelle Traconis were both eventually arrested on charges of tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution in connection with Jennifer's disappearance. Fotis Dulos, Michelle Traconis, and Fotis's attorney, Kent Malwini, face additional charges related to Jennifer's murder. In January of 2020, ex-husband and suspect Fotis Dulos killed himself, leaving their five kids without a mom or dad. Now the legal proceedings against Traconis and Malwini are ongoing. The first to go to trial, Michelle Traconis. If convicted, she could spend life behind bars. A um, couple takeaways there. The COE loved her editing work so much that she looped it like four times to make us rewatch. The second thing I said to the COE, what do you think? And she said, this guys, uh, he could be an actor, meaning he's a good looking guy. So that was the COE's takeaway. From, Here we go. For the record, it wasn't looped. I just had to push the play button. Joel. Yes. There we go. Get put right don't, in my don't place. Don't mess with the COE and that your editor, I, I, Joel. I cannot mess with the COE, but she is a fabulous editor. It comes from one man banding in Yakima, Washington. But I digress. But um, it's a, it's a very um, captivating case here. Uh, what kind of kept the trial from beginning earlier this week on Monday is last minute jury wrangling. Uh, Wendy Murphy, this jury pool was really selected back in October. And then there was an issue with filling alternates, which is what they had to, you know, kind of tend to at the beginning of the week. Is it unusual for a jury pool to be picked so far ahead of the beginning of an actual trial? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, I can't think of a case of mine where we picked a jury um, even a few days in advance. It, it, because number one, you don't want to tie them down. You don't want to burden them. But also, if you pick them and they know what uh, case they're going to be sit seated to decide, and then they're out in the community um, hearing things, reading news, talking to people. I mean, you can, there's only so much that sequestration can do anyway, and they're not sequestered. You can tell them, don't listen, don't talk and so forth. But, you know, life brings them information and they can't keep it out. So I think it's weird. I think it's not a good idea generally um, to delay. But on the other hand, this case, you know, they're, they're the lawyers involved are, are very mindful of the high profile nature of this case, the fact that it's got a lot of emotion attached to it. You can bet they've done intense preparation for jury selection. They've done screening and then some. So regardless of this unusual situation, including the fact that some jurors are now gone and, and you know, that's odd too. You might lose one. I think they lost three. Am I wrong? They lost a, a, a number. Um, you know, it's been a long time coming and mm -hmm. I, I don't think anything we've seen with the jury thus far, though unusual, will undermine the ability to get a fair result in this case. Yeah. And John, uh, by the way, Philadelphia shoulder surgeon weighing in, uh, as long as we don't have a jury like the Casey Anthony trial who acquitted, 
uh, since they couldn't say how she died. Uh, they, and um, Jennifer Wayne and that they did lose three jurors. Uh, what's interesting, John, too, this is um, a 12 person panel, but it's uh, six regular jurors and six alternates. And the defense attorney here, um, he argued that it's basically unconstitutional to have a trial uh, held that way. I, I don't know the state law in Connecticut, but it, how highly unusual is it to have a 12 uh, jury panel of six regular and six alternates? For a, a felony charge, several felony charges that could put you away for the rest of your life, it's highly unusual. I mean, in New York, we have six person juries for misdemeanors, not for felonies. So that is a little strange. And we're not usually that different from Connecticut and New Jersey, the tri-state area. So that's that's a new one for me. And I don't like it either. Yeah. So why do you have any idea why it's going down that way? Do we know? You know, no. I mean, I guess, you know, they must have changed the law in Connecticut that you can do that. But it doesn't make it just it doesn't make sense. And getting back to your original point, just thinking about why they selected this panel so far in advance. I mean, maybe maybe they needed people to take time off from work so they're not getting just the people who are retired on the jury panel, people who could have five or six or seven weeks to spend day after day. I mean, I don't know what went into that, but I can't, I can't think of another valid reason. And, and I certainly would not want to be on uh, trial for my life with only six people getting to determine that. Uh, the lifeboat, uh, he's saying weird about the jury panel. That is my friend Tommy Scoville, a former inmate, has served hard time and now uh, helps people with sobriety. Great, great guy and uh, doing good work on uh, the lifeboat YouTube channel. And then uh, we've got Carol here. I've covered this with Wendy Murphy on our show. We have a case here in the Boston area, Anna Walsh, also a mom killed by her husband. And we are covering the Dan Markell case, who is... Uh, killed by hitmen uh, hired by the ex-brother-in-law who's convicted and the ex-mother-in-law soon to go on trial. Wendy, are we living in a more violent culture now? Why are we seeing headlines of these wives or ex-wives, uh, custody battles or no custody battles, winding up dead? <laughs> How much time have I got? I think the answer Three hours. is... Uh, yes, we do live in a more violent society. And yes, women are disproportionately um, suffering the consequences. Let me tell you something shocking. Um, people think about Massachusetts as this liberal town full of love, peace and, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, where, uh, you know, a lot of bad things don't happen. In the last 10 weeks alone of 2023, eight women were murdered by their boyfriend or husband in Massachusetts, eight in 10 weeks. That made Massachusetts the deadliest state in the country for women during that time period. That has never been true. Massachusetts has never been the deadliest place for anything. So I take that as a sign uh, when a place like Massachusetts is becoming so awful for women I think it's a reflection on how things are getting much worse for our culture in general. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer, except that I do believe, because the data supports this, when it comes to violence against women, I've re actually recently wrote a law review article on this exact issue. The data shows consistently the tougher the law enforcement response, the tougher the prosecution response, the longer the punishment in terms of incarceration that the perpetrator gets. And I'm talking about before the woman ends up dead. 
because there's always a before period when there's abuse that escalates. The tougher the prosecution and law enforcement response, the lower the risk that that woman will end up dead. I know that probably sounds like common sense, but we have a problem in this country, which is people pushing and pushing and pushing toward what's called decarceration. You know, get them therapy, get them a slap on the wrist. Don't put people in jail. Bullshit. Put them in jail. That is what saves women's lives. And I don't mean to say all people who commit all crimes should always go to jail. Jail is not the solution for everything. But the data on violence against women is overwhelmingly clear and consistent over decades. The tougher law enforcement is, the more women's lives are saved, the less violence uh, they endure. So that's my answer to the question about why are so many women getting killed. If you go to countingdeadwomenusa.org, I forget the exact name of it. It's by Don Wilcox. She actually counts the number of femicides every year in this country. She does it because the government doesn't. More than six women a day are killed by men in this country. More than six a day. That's double what it was 20 years ago. Uh, You'll never be able to persuade me we're not becoming more violent and that women are not disproportionately suffering the consequences. Uh, Wendy is a trailblazer in that world, and uh, that's why she knows her stuff. But I'm curious to you and Jeanette, um, Wendy just said we are definitely more violent. Uh, This is nothing to do with this particular case specifically, but any guesses as to why? Do you think it's just the way the culture has changed, the way there's uh, video games and sort of a desensitization uh, towards society in general? What do you think it is, Jeanette? You know, I, I wonder about that a lot sometimes. I, I don't know if it, I think we do become really desensitized. Maybe it, maybe it's video games. Maybe it's, you know, just what we watch in movies and on television. Um, I think personally, as far as violence against women goes, I think it can begin with what people are seeing at home or what um, they are viewing on television, but also just with generally how women are treated in our culture. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of, things in our culture that objectify women. And, and if you're brought up in a way um, where you're not treated or you're not, I'm sorry, where you're not taught to respect women and to treat women well, I think that it can um, just, it can just make it, it can just make men more um, have a proclivity toward being violent with women. So I don't know if it's because domestic violence is, something that still is a little taboo to talk about. I mean, think about how many times, you know, Gabby Petito comes to mind, the poor girl, you know, she was a victim of domestic violence. And as far as anybody knew, nobody knew about it. So people still, even with all of the awareness that's been raised about it out there, where, you know, it's still kind of try to hide and they don't talk about. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of different factors as far as um, violence against women, what, how it starts, how it begins, why, why we become more violent. But um, I just think, you know, sometimes I'm kind of stunned by what I see in movies and stuff, too, like the level of violence. And it, and it looks, I don't know, do, do we be, just become, it's fake, right? <laughs> but some people just aren't that intelligent. Um, and this is how they this is how they solve problems like i even when i worked in local news they were starting to see more and more teenagers reaching for guns to solve problems i mean 
this is insane. So does it begin at home? Like when they're young? I don't know. And then it just gets worse as as people get older and they uh, mature. I, I don't know. So I think there are many different factors. Yeah. And uh, John, I promise I'm getting right back to you. But just on my mind, uh, at four o'clock, Wendy, we did a case. Uh, Courtney Clenny here in Miami just stabbed and killed her 27-year-old boyfriend, uh, went the other way, very abusive. Um, I assume we see that much less often, but this is a big guy, um, strong guy. Previously, she had dated another very big, muscular type guy. She's an Instagram model and uh, stabbed him in the chest with a knife. But um, it, the water flows in both directions, correct? I mean, women can be Yeah, yes, but it trickles in that direction and it really gushes in the other. I mean, let's be honest, women can be violent. They can kill their husbands. Of course they can. I mean- you know, black people generally were lynched, but you could lynch a white person. Let's just talk honestly about this problem. It's pornography, primarily. Boys at a very young age learn about girls and how to relate to them on their phones watching porn. And it's erotic. Being violent to a woman is erotic in porn. So you don't, you don't just get permission to be violent. You get an erection if you're violent. This is the, in my opinion, the number one driving force. Does that explain women's violence against men? No. But you know what does? Over 90% of women currently incarcerated for killing their male partners are there because they were abused in long-term relationships and no one did anything to protect them. The police might have arrested him, but then the revolving door at the courthouse sent the guy back home again. Nothing happens when men beat and rape women. We only care when the woman ends up dead. Well, guess what that sends a message to for women? You know what they hear? When they hear over and over again, we don't care that you're getting raped and beaten. They think, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to get a gun. I'm going to get a knife. And I'm going to do what I need to do because no one helps me. This guy keeps getting away with it over 90%. Wait, I forget if it's 80 or 90, but a large percentage of women in prison for killing their male partners are there because they suffered long-term abuse and nothing was done about it. And they became desperate. They became vigilantes. That's what happens when the legal system fails women. They step up and do it themselves. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm saying, take a lesson. If you want people not to die, if you want women not to kill men and vice versa, you got to get at the underlying cause. And that's why I say incarceration isn't always the only solution. It clearly isn't. But the underlying cause question, we, we talk about it after the fact and we never use it as foresight. Well, you know, if you're not going to make hindsight into foresight, then you better get ready for women to start killing lots of men because it's the only solution for a lot of women who are being abused at home finally taking matters into their own hands is the only way out. Uh, Diana Johnson here with a super sticker. I think women are sticking up for themselves and leaving these relationships more. Some men still think they should be the king. Tiff Knox weighing in. Uh, power's exciting for boys and men. Irene Kalexico here. I'm going to be sick. Glad I'm not dating. LOL. Maybe you should be lucky. Uh, so someone asked about the uh, charges. Thank you, Vintage Mama of three for, for tuning in here. Um, someone asked about the charges, Jana. Uh, mm -hmm. She is charged with conspiracy to commit murder, 
tampering with physical evidence and hindering prosecution. Uh, talk about those charges. I mean, how serious are they? And uh, what, what does it really mean when it's all said and done? The most serious charge is the conspiracy to commit murder charge. Remember, the other two charges she actually faced early on. They added the conspiracy to commit murder after they tacked on uh, the murder charges, which was right before Fotis Dulos killed himself. So really the one that she needs to be most concerned with is the conspiracy to meet, uh, to commit murder, which you know begs the question, depending on how this case uh, pans out, depending what evidence actually gets in, because remember there was a suppression hearing uh, earlier in the week or a couple of weeks ago where the defense did get a win in that the information that they would have gotten from um, Traconis's cell phone has been suppressed. Now, I don't know if there was anything good on there. I don't know if there was a flurry of text messages where maybe there was an admission of guilt by either one or both. We don't know that and we won't know that because that information is going to get suppressed. But it, it begs the question, why is she being charged with the conspiracy as opposed to an accessory after the fact, which is a lower level, like the tampering charges are. Like if she were in the car or in a truck with him and he's making 30 stops to get rid of bags of stuff, which is unusual, and she's just riding shotgun, I mean, why wouldn't they charge her with an accessory after? Where does the conspiracy come in? When will we see that evidence in support of the conspiracy charge? That's why I think this case is not a straight line for prosecutors because they got to almost have a trial within a trial. But her you know what I think, what I think Shana, you know, it's such a good question. I thought the same thing when I'm reading the evidence, where's it, where's the before the fact stuff on her. Right. Right. But here's the little thing that I saw and I, it may not be enough. It's clear that at least police are saying prosecutors are saying that um, Jennifer drops the kids at school, goes back home. He's lying in wait and she's killed in the garage or somewhere in the house. And he, and he takes her in her car bleeding, perhaps not yet dead, but bleeding because there's blood in her car to some location near a park. And then the car gets left there. Somebody had to pick him up and put the body somewhere in the other vehicle. Right. Mm -hmm that's the conspiracy that's got to be where she comes in he couldn't have abandoned the car and gotten into some other vehicle without her help and and somehow moved the body there's got to be something there that I, I like that theory but what if <laughs> michelle draconis doesn't know anything about the murder until after the murder what if he calls her up and says i just killed my wife help now there's yeah. no conspiracy to commit the murder. The murder's already committed. Yep, totally and, agree with that. And, and, and we're, we're gonna, we, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk. We're gonna listen to a police interview in a minute, but she's been very adamant about denying all these allegations against her, which most defendants are. But Anjanette, just back to the jury uh, issue real quick. Uh, the questions that they were being asked, you regularly follow media reports about this case. Can you avoid media reports for the duration of the trial? Have you posted about the case? Have you formed an opinion about the defendant? In your opinion, how hard is it to try these cases that are so high profile? This has been on the you know the front page of the uh, news in Connecticut. It's been in local New York news uh, on the airwaves. How hard is it to choose a jury in a 
situation like this? Well, it depends on the size of the venue, first of all. And second of all, a lot of time has passed. I mean, it's been many, many years. I mean, like when Jennifer Doulos was missing and, and Photos Doulos was charged and then he um, killed himself, I mean, that was a huge story. I I was working in local news in Cincinnati when that broke. And I remember I was logging on watching New York news online because I was so drawn into this and wanted to know what was going to happen. Um, so, but that's a long time. I and mean, we've had a pandemic in between, you know, I always say it's kind of funny, like we kind of live in this world. So we pay attention to this stuff very closely, but your average person, um, I feel like, you know, regular people, um, if you will, you know, they have like jobs and lives and kids soccer practice and stuff like that. So um, you can find these people who maybe aren't following the news or following every development with this case, or maybe they remember it, but they just aren't really, they aren't following it closely. So I, I think what makes it harder these days is this like the cell phone and the news alerts that may pop up or Facebook and wherever people get their news these days, you know, maybe that will make it harder um, because you have to be able to control what's popping up on your phone. Um, but it can be done. I'm sure. I mean, they're just going to have to trust in the jurors. And, you know, I hear some people say, Oh, I don't, I've heard defense attorneys say before, Oh, I don't believe that jurors ever <laughs> follow the judge's admonishment about that stuff. But um, I think you have to have some faith that that they will. Uh, look at this, Jana. You were just outed here. Is that a wine rack behind Jana? <laughs> Love the decor. You're kind of talking about that maybe right before the show started. Jana is caught. Um, Jana, not only is it super high profile, um, but this trial is also expected because of the list of uh, witnesses and all the evidence to last until March. And it starts tomorrow, which I think is January 11th. So from January 11th to March and in Connecticut, there's only a law. You only have to pay a business only has to pay jurors who are doing service for the first five days. So um, how do you reconcile that? If you're uh, this and the defense choosing the jurors, you don't want to pick someone who's going to be, you know, um, antagonistic or, bitter because they've now got to sit on a jury panel till March 1st or whatever. That is really problematic. Although I will say that jurors don't really get paid a lot. They get like, I don't know, 40 bucks a day. So you're not doing it for the money while you're sitting in trial, but that does make it difficult. And it gives my wildly speculative, speculative theory that they had to pick jurors that could plan to take a vacation so they wouldn't go broke sitting on this trial, maybe just a tad more um, credibility. That's just, that's just really strange. We don't want to make our civic duty such a hardship because we really limit the pool of people who will be making major, major decisions over some stranger's life. It really is. I mean, we'll do another show sometime on whether we should have professional juries at some point in our lifetime. It, tonight's not the night, but it really does make it difficult. And I agree with Anjanette. Like, I, I don't fully trust that my juries aren't going online and Googling and getting the info and water cooler. I mean, they're human beings. They're not supposed to, but if they don't get caught, if, you know, tree falls in the forest, nobody, it doesn't make a sound. Does anybody hear it? However that saying goes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it could be as innocuous as just forgetting to turn your alerts off and something right? pops up on your phone. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy the world that we do live in. Um, 
Back to you, Wendy, from Jacqueline. Both her and meaning Michelle Traconis, Folis's DNA, uh, Fotis Doulis's DNA found on the debris in discarded bags recovered by police. How problematic is that? That uh, obviously plays to the case that you were making for uh, the state here. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a nice piece of evidence for the prosecution. However, I think her lawyer would probably pretty easily make some kind of point about how. Uh, of course, her DNA was there. She lived with him. You know, they touch each other. There's stuff all over the place. And and there and I think there was only one one piece that had her DNA on there. Uh, so that's something you can probably explain away with at least a an arguable innocent explanation. I think it depends where it is. You know, is it in Jennifer's blood or is it on some benign, arguably benign piece of um, evidence or material found in the bag? The stuff in the bag is important, though. Um, you know, it's not only that there's blood in there, which it's hard to come up with an innocent explanation for blood when you find it, except for little tiny droplets. I mean, we're we're also talking about a case where the, the blood evidence has spatter to it. You know, people bleed, and, and when they do, they if it's just, you know, something that happened, you drip, you drip your blood. You don't spatter. You got to really be, you got to have force for, for spatter. Um, that's not going to be good for the defense to have to explain that away. Now, whether they can tie that to Traconis, I think is another story. Um, the fact that she sort of, I don't know, you know, never really cut the cord with him is a problem too for her because the jury is going to think to itself, if she really had nothing to do with this, she would have run to the cops on day one and said, I don't know what kind of monster this is, you know, dumping blood and guts and so forth in bags. And I, I just want to get away from him, make sure he doesn't kill me, do what I can to help the government because this poor woman is dead. She had five children. Her reaction, her reaction in general was, um, was just chalked with guilty conscience um, and that's a hard thing to talk about in terms of uh, black and white evidence, because what it really is, is a feeling the jurors will have. They won't identify with her. And one of the things John will tell you as a good defense attorney, you want the jurors to be able to identify with your client so they can feel some affinity there. And that gives them the desire, if you will, to to be real considerate on their side, right, to really listen to their evidence this is, I don't think she's got that going for her. She's not a sympathetic, a sympathetic character. Um, they're going to have this sense of her that even though there's no right way to behave when your boyfriend is accused of killing his ex-wife or soon to be ex-wife, um, if there were such a playbook, nothing Traconis did would be in there. <laughs> so I think she's going to have a hard time getting jurors to feel for her. And that is going to inhibit them from from erring on the side of doubt in her favor. And that's going to be good for the prosecution. Hmm. Can I jump in there for a second, Joel? 100 um, percent, Anjanette. But, you know, one thing that I I think is interesting about this, like, I mean, everybody, everybody has the right to, you know, go to trial. Right. But the guy's dead. OK, <laughs> so um, you're facing a conspiracy to commit murder charge. So if you were just. <laughs> unwittingly taken along on this or, Oh, come pick me up. And I pick you up and I, and you're like, 
okay, she's dead. I, I chopped her up or whatever. And I, I mean, let's say she picks her, picks him up at the car where her Jennifer's body is. How did it, was it already in the trash bags? Like what, what happened? How did it get, how did all this stuff get, or how did her body get wherever the stuff gets in the trash bags? It's dumped all over the place. He's dead. If you weren't part of the murder after he's dead, come clean and just say, yeah, the guy like calls me and wants me to like come pick him up. And then I'm like, what Mm. the heck is going on? Like she didn't do that. Conspiracy to commit murder is such a serious charge. I'm just thinking to myself, if you weren't involved in the conspiracy, why haven't you done this yet? Like, why haven't you tried to, you know, get out of this in that fashion? And maybe she has, we don't know. And I I have an open mind because I want to see all of the evidence. I want to see what happens with opening statements tomorrow and what both sides say. But I mean, that's, it's such a serious charge. You're facing so many years in prison and you, and you're, you're taking this to trial. I mean, you're on well, that, well and Jeanette, I was actually going to come back to you about that because she has vehemently denied these allegations all along. But um, it feels like every time there's a defendant, they deny the allegations. So it's, you know, I don't know how much um, value you can put in it. Right. Well, they well, don't need her anymore. anymore. They don't need her anymore because he's dead. So they don't have to give her a deal. That's what I but think. And Jeanette's right. They do need to know where the body is. I think the family yeah. would love the closure and she might be, it, it, she might have knowledge of that. He might've mm-hmm. told, if she's not involved, he might've told her she might know that would be her ace in the hole to strike a deal. And let's suppose maybe she was frightened of him too. You know, maybe maybe his ex-wife wasn't the only one that was getting bullied by this guy. And maybe she was afraid of him. But then after he's dead, she should have been like, here I am. Let's talk. Yeah. Um, we don't know whether we don't know whether that happened. And maybe yeah. rejected. Um, this is interesting, and we're we're gonna get to the suicide in a moment, but Moto 88, uh, to you, Wendy, uh, will the husband's suicide photos Dulos, uh ex-husband, will he will it be brought up in this trial? Is it evidence of guilt in a similar way that flight is? Yeah, I love this question because it's sort of like um, you know, the criminal who runs away when the police get to the scene. The fact is, it cuts both ways. I think it cuts stronger in favor of guilt, um, but the defense always makes the other argument, which is, yes, he committed suicide because he was in so much distress. Not because he was guilty. He was sad. He was in distress. His life was falling apart. He had financial problems. And by the way, he had massive financial problems that provide more than a lot of motive for the murder. By the way, very quickly on that, so... Um, Jennifer's family is extremely wealthy, and I think he owed the mother-in-law about seven million dollars. Is that, is he that was how you understand? So much debt, so much debt. But but anyway, the point about suicide is the prosecution will argue that it suggests guilt. The defense will say it suggests sadness. I don't think it's quite a wash. It favors. It's a thumb on the scale for the prosecution. But the point is, it's admissible. It's an arguable point, but it is admissible on the state of mind issue. Uh, there is the home divorce and custody battle. You see uh, Jennifer Farber uh, Dulos and Fotis Dulos in happier times. But that those are the homes in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is also the home of David Letterman, for those of you uh, on the West Coast. So that's uh, the kind of wealth that is uh, that's there. Um, just a little background, some more on Michelle Traconis. So she's a uh, Venezuelan national. Someone told me, though, she was actually raised here in Miami, uh, but she did. 
um, broadcasting in Venezuela, uh, was fairly well known down there. Uh, and she was in this long term relationship at the time. Um, and that is why she is brought up on these charges of uh, conspiracy to commit murder, among the others. But as I said, she's always denied these allegations. Um, one of the things, Jana, that the defense attorney was looking to do was change the venue, move it to uh, Hartford from Stanford. Stanford and Hartford, by the way, is where they were dumping parts of the body, um, allegedly. But uh, that was turned down. Why is it so hard to get that change of venue? In this day and age, it, it's almost impossible. And the reason is because we no longer live in, in, in an era where, you know, news traveled on actual paper that was carried on horseback to the, you know, local saloon. Like we don't, it's there. Information is at our fingertips 24 seven. It doesn't matter whether you're being tried on the moon, whether you're being tried where the crime allegedly was committed or where, whether you're being tried down the street, the information is there there's no more Mayberry, right? There's no more Mayberry. And I think that originally is, is, you know, one of the reasons why venue was a bigger deal than it is now. Now I think we have global venue. So it really, it doesn't matter. That's not, that's not what this case is going to turn on the place, that place where it's being tried. And uh, we do try to uh, remember and honor the victims on this show. This is a statement that uh, family and friends of Jennifer Farber Dulos just put out um, in the last couple of days. As this trial begins, which is happening tomorrow, it is crucial to remember who is at the center. Jennifer, whose five children have lost their mother and as an eventuality, both parents. Jennifer's family and loved ones have lost a loving daughter, sister, cousin and lifelong friend. We do not see closure as nothing can bring Jennifer back. Our hope is that this trial provides for accountability and answers. And Anjanette, one of the things that they're hoping comes of this trial is what Jana was just talking about, which is getting word on where her body is so they can have you know, some sort of finality. People hate the word closure, but at least yeah. you know, a proper burial. Uh, what do you think of that statement? There's, I feel like there's never closure. I hate that word when it comes to these cases because people are always saying like, oh, the family needs closure. I've never talked to the family of a murder victim who felt like they got closure after a trial, after, you know, somebody was arrested or the trial. I mean, it, it brings accountability and some measure of peace because, you know, the, the person who took their loved one's life is being held accountable. I mean, I think that's the only thing you can say. They're they're getting some measure of justice, um, but but there's never going to be closure. And the fact that her body has not been located makes it even worse for the family. Um, I do want to say though that I, I have seen cases, and I'm trying to think of how many. I know there's one in in particular from my area where there was no body, and they got a conviction. Um, that was back in the 1990s. Um, the victim was Carrie Culberson's horrible case. She was a victim of domestic violence. I mean, awful, awful case. Um, and her mother was very strong and vocal about, you know, the fact that the boyfriend needed to be held accountable. I mean, she had been beaten up so many times and they were she, him and him and his stepbrother were seen with blood on them that night. I mean, a horrible case. But I mean, it can be done. These cases can be won. Um, and it sounds like they do have a lot of physical evidence and circumstantial evidence. So, um, but the family is, they're never going to be, I mean, think about the kids. Both of their parents are gone. It's can horrible. I say one one quick thing in response? Because I thought that statement from the family may well have been a bit of, a, I don't know if it's called a dog whistle, but 
You notice how they said, we're not interested in closure. That could well be this family saying, she tried to make a deal by telling us where the body was and we told her to screw. Because it's so weird for a family to say, we don't give a shit about closure. We just want accountability. We want her to be held accountable. We want justice. It's a little bit weird to issue that kind of statement. So, so my question to them would be, what made you say we're not interested in closure? That is a retort to something. And I have a sneaky suspicion. It's them saying through the lines, yeah, she tried to make a deal with us by telling us where the body was and we told her to go pound sand. I'm guessing, but that's yeah, why. I, I just don't think there's ever, I just don't think there's any such thing as closure for these families. Well, I know, but I'm saying. But that's interesting that you're, re- you're reading between the lines. It is interesting. I agree. I just. Yeah. Um, I don't know much about this. I don't know if any of the three of you do, but Jennifer Jansen, Kent Malwini, he is the uh, one-time attorney for Fotis Doulis, another co-conspirator. Jennifer saying that he's going to testify against Michelle Traconis. Uh, John, are you familiar with this? I, I don't know much about him um, as he, you know, as it pertains to this particular case. Well, if my memory serves, I don't know if he was the lawyer for Fotis Doulos or just a friend who happened to be a lawyer. And they're accusing him of trying to create some sort of alibi, which so there wouldn't be any attorney client privilege because you're not allowed to commit a crime in connection with representing your client. So that would pull you right out of the attorney client privilege. So they must. My again, wild speculation is that the police came down like a ton of bricks on anybody they could come down on a, like a ton of bricks on with the hope that somebody or all of them would start singing and pointing their fingers at Fotis Dulos. And then Fotis Dulos pulled the rug out from underneath everybody because he killed himself. And then that left the two remaining defendants going, well, now what? And their attorneys are probably saying, just keep denying because they're going to have a very hard time. They've got to prove that there was a murder before they can prove your involvement in the murder. I'm just saying that's probably what they're telling their clients. And now here we are four years later um, with this one trial about to start. Uh, Bonnie Lee Lopez. Go ahead, Wendy. Just very quickly, what I read about my Winnie is the reason he's charged, there are really two key things. One is that police have him speaking by telephone with um, Dulos during the time that he was dumping those garbage bags the night of the apparent murder. And um, Mawini denied it. He said, I didn't talk to him that day at all. And the police said, oh, well, oops, look at this. We have your phone records. You did talk to him. And oh, by the way, you were speaking to him in connection with this time period when he was dumping evidence. Um, let me just say, and I'm, I won't put John on the spot to confirm this, but I, I know because I've prosecuted many cases, when people do bad things, and including when they kill, but certainly when they are smart enough to know, oh my God, I'm gonna need a lawyer. They don't wait till the cops come and get them before they call their lawyer. They call the lawyer when the thing happens because they're looking for advice about how to cover the case up. How do I not get in trouble? How do I come up with an alibi? I mean, that is part of what lawyers do. Sadly, I, I think it's a terrible thing that they have to do that, but it is some, sometimes the advice they give is in the immediate aftermath of the murder and they advise them on how to you know, stage the scene or get rid of evidence. And it does look like the police think that Mawini played a role in at least the disposal of some of that evidence, perhaps even more. I mean, maybe Mawini's prepared to say, 
without violating attorney-client privilege if if it survives death in Connecticut. I don't know. It does it does survive death in Massachusetts. But the point is that Mawini might have some something to offer that might have worked very well against Dulos and now will work equally well at, at least in terms of proving the murder against Traconis, but it's also possible that Mawini knows more about Traconis's role because perhaps Dulos called the lawyer first to ask, you know, what role uh, Traconis should play? What, what, what do I do with this other person who's involved, Traconis? I mean, because there, remember, there is, which is a really critical piece of evidence in this case, there is what they're calling the alibi note, which was found in the home. It's a numbered list of um, blow-by-blow things that happened that day. Eight o'clock, I ate the omelet. You know, nine o'clock, I went to the bathroom. I don't know what he put on there. I read it quickly. But there's a literal blow-by-blow for every hour, every half hour of the day. And it's it's written as if it is an alibi list, perhaps guided by Mo Winnie. Like, make your alibi list and here's what you should say, at least for some of it. And what's interesting and important about the list is that during the time period that they were throwing away the bags and bags of evidence, which remember is on video, so they can't, she can't deny it. Traconis cannot deny being there. She's Although her attorney people. said, I guess the attorney said, how do you know it's really her? Because it's from a bit of a distance, but it's pretty obvious. Yeah, but well, there's... good luck with that defense. Anyway, <laughs> it's clear, it's clear that she was involved in, um, at least in some aspects of this note. And yet that alibi stuff at the at the bottom that covers the evening period when they were out throwing the trash away, uh, they just happened not to mention that they were in the truck driving, even for an innocent reason, driving in you know the Hartford area where they were dumping all these bags. So all of that stuff's you know a little unknown to us. Um, and I think my Winnie knows more than we know he knows or that we've heard yet. Because we do know that police have him, you know, dead to rights on the phone with Dulos at exactly the time where they're dumping that trash. The other thing Mawini knows about is um, at least he seems to. I don't know what he knows, but there's this stuff about a, about a gun club in the area where Mawini used to be a member and then he wasn't. And then all of a sudden, right after the murder... He calls the gun club up and says, oh, I'd like to be a member again. He never actually pays his membership dues, but it, but because he says, I'd like to be a member again, they give him the code to the land so he can go out and start shooting or doing whatever they do at that club. And um, the police eventually find a, a grave dug there that just big enough to fit a body the size of, of, of Jennifer. Um, the, the grave eventually gets refilled um, which is also suspicious because it got refilled after it was made known that somebody found it. Some some shooters found it when they happened upon it. Ma Winnie knows about this because they pinged his phone at the location. So we don't know what he's going to say. All we know is there's a reason he's charged and he's got something to say about his role because of his relationship with Dulos, which means he absolutely has something to say about what Traconis knew and when she knew it. So, and, and Jonathan, I got to clear. I want to clear one thing up on the record, and I yeah. think Wendy knows this. Any attorney that would cover up a crime for his or her client, manipulate evidence, lie about evidence—that's not an attorney. That is an accessory. And any attorney who does that should lose their license and should go to jail. 
Real defense attorneys who are worth their salt don't do that. We know how to defend people without becoming criminals, and that's a hundred percent. So if this, if Malwini did half of what you just described, half of what's in the record already, then he wasn't acting as a lawyer. He was acting as a criminal, and and he'll get what he deserves if and, that comes to light. And hey, that John, is really well said. Do, I, I believe I yeah. believe he was disbarred. Um, I believe he was disbarred. I have to double check that. That's but at least of but, what should happen to him. Yeah, but John, if this is um. If if he if he is going to testify in this case against Michelle Traconis, is it possible that he's already cut some sort of deal behind closed doors with the state that we don't even know about yet? Yeah, uh, I guess it's I guess it's I guess it's possible if he's going to point the finger at her. It's just kind of like it's just kind of strange, right? Because I don't know if pointing the finger at her absolves him of his involvement in whether he was an accessory or a co-conspirator. Um, all that does is kind of, you know, uh, misery loves company, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Cause he is the, I don't know as much as, as Wendy, as you do about what they're going to claim his involvement was. And well, Anjanette, I didn't mean to just, cut you off. Did you, did, no, Anjanette, ahead, did you have something to say? I'm sorry. Well, I, I guess I'm just wondering, and I'm sorry, Joel, I shouldn't have interrupted like that. No, I think I at all. forgot this is, you know, your show. But <laughs> um, Jonna, like, what do you do? Like, if a client calls you up and he's like, hey, I, I just killed my wife. I killed Jennifer and um, I'm driving around with her body in the car and blah, blah. I mean, like, what do you do? I mean, you, if your client calls you and says that, are you like, uh, what? I mean, what, what do you do? Like, what's your reaction? Wrong number. <laughs> no, first, I, I, yeah, how far does attorney-client privilege go? Do you have to inform authorities if a client calls and tells you that? No, you don't have to inform authorities. I think what you would do initially, and typically what we do, is when a client calls up and they've got some sort of admission to a crime, the first thing you do is say, you're not talking to the authorities, and you immediately start running interference. And you're not going to be able to advise him where to hide the body or how to get rid of the body. You're going to have to say, pull over. I've got this. But he's basically going to be up Shit's Creek without a paddle because you're not going to be able to prevent him unless he doesn't listen to you. And he drives off into the sunset and then he calls you up and says, here's my $50,000. Save me, which has happened. But you're not going to be able to tell him how to commit a murder or how to get away with the crime. What you can do is protect his constitutional rights from the inquiring authorities. And then you're going to have to let the case develop from there. But seriously have, though, like seriously though, like you're, you're like, Hey, Hey, I, I, I've got the, I, I killed her. I got her in the car. Like, I, wait, I mean, God, like pull over. Like, what do you, like, I can't even imagine getting that phone call as a defense attorney. Like, and, and those phone calls are, are rather rare. I would assume. Yeah. Usually, I mean, I get the phone calls while they're being while they're in jail getting processed for something, but I haven't gotten the phone call or I just killed my wife. Where should I dump the body? I have not gotten one of those phone calls. But I remember this is just a little sidebar. Years ago, when I was brand new, wet behind the ears, baby defense attorney, and I had a mentor in San Diego, and I used to follow him to all the jails, and we'd sit there and we'd interview clients. And um, one day I said to him, I'm like, how come you're not asking any of these guys if they did it? <laughs> He's like, because you never asked that question. And I'm and he explained, he explained why. And and it was a, you know, a dance between here's what the evidence shows, Mr. Client. Here's what the police have on you. What say you? You never ask 
whether they're actually guilty. It was a really interesting learning lesson for a very young attorney at the time a million years ago, which is why I now have a thousand bottle wine racks in my house. <laughs> You've earned it. Um, Rosemary, <laughs> Rosemary Romero here. Did Jennifer Dulos tell anyone that she feared that her ex-husband Fotis Dulos would kill her in divorce documents before her death? Jennifer said she knew the filing would enrage her husband. And in a blog post uh, that was reported on by the Daily Mail, of all people, she said that she would end up in a body bag. That is haunting. Uh, she claimed that he would retaliate by trying to harm her in some way. That is a direct quote and claimed that he exhibited irrational, unsafe, bullying, threatening and controlling behavior. Direct quote there and went on to say and this is another another direct quote. I'm afraid for my safety and the physical safety and emotional well-being of our minor children. Wendy, these are haunting words uh, now that we know the outcome. Um, what, you know, I, I, I guess Wish hindsight I is 2020. But I mean, the hardest thing and you talk about this is getting out of a relationship when it is so difficult. Um, she got out of it. She was divorced. But um still ended up this way, an absolute tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to say this and I don't care if it's impolitic or people disagree with it or whatever. It makes you not, it, it makes you crazy. I always advise victims of domestic abuse to get firearms and learn how to use them. It's not that I think they ought to run around shooting people. It's that one of the things that happens when the, when the risk goes up is that men will be happy to use whatever force and power and authority they have to continue to control, manipulate, abuse, uh, assert, you know, use whatever, coerce, use whatever word you want. Um, women need a bit of equalizing when things get tough. And physically, they're often not the stronger of the two. Um, they often don't have the money. I mean, you know, every case is different, but if you've got little money, no physicality, and you, you're living with an abusive man, you have no choice but to learn how to use weapons and especially to become trained in firearms. And I say that because I don't want people to run around killing anybody, but I want women not to be afraid of the man for the fact that he has a gun. If a man shows up with a gun and you are a trained trained shooter, you know how to handle it. You're not going to be as terrified and, and uh, vulnerable, and he's not going to feel like he has as much power over you. In fact, he might not abuse you because he's afraid you might kill him. This is part of what we need to do in this country as all these women keep dying in exponentially more uh, and, and higher numbers. Um, we need to tell women that it's okay to fight back. Like if a guy's hitting you and you think he's going to cause you serious bodily harm, you can kill him. If a man is threatening you and you think he's going to kill you, you can kill him. It's called self-defense. It's allowed. We don't teach this to women. We teach them to be submissive, to be afraid, to be dependent. And it's a horrendous way to run a relationship, to give one person so much power and control. And to me, it's also disrespectful of these men. I mean, I, I say this, even though I'm, these guys are horrendous monsters in many cases, they're also raised in the same crappy culture that makes them feel good about being violent and abusive and controlling. They're not, they don't get messages that that's a bad way to be a husband or a bad way to be a boyfriend. So 
I do anything I can to help equalize relationships with my clients. And, and, and I always tell them to, to become trained in, in using firearms rather than, which is, which is what's so common for women. They see a gun or they, they hear there's a gun and it's like it's a mouse. Oh, oh, it's, it's a gun. I'm so afraid. No, I want the woman to be able to pick it up and, and know how to use it if she has to. Defend herself rather than cowering and submitting in fear. It's not a message we've taught women ever in this country, and it is why so many women end up dead. And I'm not saying Jennifer would be alive if she had had a gun, but I think there's a better, she would have had a better chance at not being killed by him if she had been, you know, holding a gun on her person when he, when she confronted him lying in wait at her house. If a guy does that and you're worried and you've already told police you're afraid he's going to kill you and you're not holding a gun ready to protect yourself, what do you expect he's going to do? Or at least self-defense classes, you know, I feel like... You can't punch a gun, though. You can shoot. You can't punch a bullet. Uh, the the com- community is definitely... Go ahead, Jonna. Joel, I just want to add something to that that, we, that sure. we're missing. And I agree with you. I'm a gun holder and I and I get it. I get that. But I also handle, I'm in divorce court and family court almost on a daily basis. Nothing will make a person unravel faster than having a stranger in a black robe tell you when you can see your children. Uh, Having a stranger in a black robe tell you that you're splitting half the retirement that you worked for for the last 25 years. Like a healthy minded person can get through that process without killing anybody, without needing an order of protection against him or her. A healthy minded person can do that. An unhealthy minded person will spiral out of control before, during and after every single court appearance in that process. And what we don't provide and what we should provide is counseling for the parties in divorce and family court cases. We give the children a free lawyer, we'll give a party a free lawyer if they can't afford one in family court, but we do not give them free shrinks. And a lot of these people need that to save themselves and to save themselves from hurting someone else. We don't do it, we ought to. That's I my totally two agree with that. I, I think that's interesting. I don't think it would have mattered in this case because this guy killed for money. <laughs> he killed because he wanted a access to the children's trust funds because he was broke. But I totally agree with that, John. I like that idea very much. And I'm not sure um, everybody's amenable to therapy, but there should at least be the opportunity to manage your crazy emotions. And the court, because the court is causing some of the emotional distress, they ought to take responsibility for helping. Right. The There's a reason that uh, they say money is a root of all evil. It definitely causes people to snap. I am not T-Pain. We Read this aloud in the four o'clock because a man was killed by a woman. Now it's the other way around. If you're in a DV uh, relationship and need help and resources, please reach out to the DV hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. 1-800-799-SAFE. Unfortunately, people are in those situations and uh, there is help on the other end, I think, if you can get it in time. Um, Let's listen to, there's a... um, the state just released this uh, a couple of days ahead. This is a police interrogation of Michelle Tricona, so just about a minute long, with her attorney at her side and cop the cop telling her, the detective, the police officer, telling her, uh, do you know that you're the most hated woman in America? This is back in either 2019. I think it's 2020, actually. But let's take a listen together and hope that the COE didn't loop it 20 times. <laughs> 
So well, what if I were to tell you that I have evidence that he was not in the house at that time? Morning. You see what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want to be over dramatic. I don't want okay. to. This is not listening. This is not any kind of threat. I just want you to understand. You have a daughter who's 12 years old. You have a mother. How old is your mom? 16. Okay. All right. You want to see them, right? You don't want to go to prison. You don't want to get arrested for murder. Okay. All right, trying to work with you. Absolutely. I'm sure you, you, got, you got released from court, right? You bonded out. And have you looked at the news at all? Have you seen your face plastered? I mean, I'll be honest with you, you're probably one of the most hated women in America right now. And I'm not being mean. So this is like the golden ticket. If you know where he could have done something and could have, where he frequents, if you could tip us off, maybe he said something in jest, something in passing that you can say, you know what, that rings a bell. Maybe. Uh, what about that tactic, Jonna, where the detective is telling her, uh, you know, you are the most hated woman in America? Uh, what do you make of that police interview? Well, the tactic is sound. Police are allowed to do that. They're allowed to manipulate. They're allowed to lie. They're allowed to say that. What's awful about that interview is that it's happening. This is what happens when you hire your real estate lawyer to represent you. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. The guy didn't say a damn thing. He didn't do oh anything. Well, what, would, Jonna, what would you have done in there? What would you have done? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been in there. They would have said, I want to talk to your client. I'm like, not without a deal. Bye. There would have been no statement. There would have been none of that. I mean, obviously, this attorney didn't practice criminal defense. That's unfortunate for her because I think that's also going to come into evidence in this case. That was ridiculous. That was that never should have happened. By the way, Mandy Strong, Wendy, I'd like to get your take on this. I noticed the look on her face as she looked at her, at her lawyer for an answer. Someone <laughs> earlier made an interesting point. Uh, English is her second language. She's uh, obviously a Spanish speaker from Venezuela. And they said that the defense is going to use her, quote unquote, language barrier. Is there anything to that, you think? Yeah, a lot of drama. And, uh, you know, there's a real risk because th she did not have any trouble speaking English for almost the entire time uh, after the murder. And, and, you know, during a lot of the pretrial proceedings in Dulles's case, and even in her case, I mean, it's just a new thing that she suddenly needs an interpreter. And the problem with that is you risk the jury thinking you're putting on the dog and um, you're being manipulative and, you know, that just colors your credibility in all the wrong ways, because now they're not, if they think you're making it up about your language barrier, and, you know, she, she was raised in this country. So, yes, she's a Spanish speaker, but so are half the people in this country, and they also speak English. Half the people in Spanish-speaking countries, 90% of them speak English. So they're not going to believe if, if she tries to suggest that she's got the kind of language barrier that interferes with her ability to understand questions or she, she was manipulated in an unfair way during the interview, I, I just think there's a real risk you're going to push the jurors away and, and they're going to think if you would make such theater about something that important – you would probably lie about everything. And, you know, again, that makes them more inclined to, to find you guilty, even if you're not guilty, because they're starting to dislike you now. It's a very serious risk. And you see this sometimes with defendants who they, they just will, will stoop 
at to, to any level, you know, I can't tell you the number of cases I've had where child rapists, once they get arrested and they show up in court, suddenly they're in a wheelchair. I mean, I've had cases where we literally followed the guy after he left the courthouse in the wheelchair. We followed him and found him walking around and, you know, there was no wheelchair. It's just a part of the system that not a lot of people know much about because it seems a little crazy that anybody would dare lie in that sort of way in a, in a courtroom because it's such an important and serious place, but it happens. And, you know, the fact is she might think, and her lawyer might think that she seeks to, that she stands to gain an advantage because, oh, the, not only were the police being mean to her and calling her names and putting pressure on her, but they were doing it knowing she doesn't even speak the language. These horrendous, racist, terrible, awful cops. There's a, you know, there may well be a juror who's open to that. In these days, calling police names and blaming them for doing everything wrong in the case, there's some stickiness to that, especially today. So we could be watching not so much a serious language barrier uh, as, a, as a tactic. A couple more minutes, and then we're going to wrap up and get final thoughts. Emma D here for Ann Jeanette. Uh, and this is where the passions flare sort of... Uh, Reminds me a little bit of the COE and my and my dear mother. She she should be buried under the jail until she gives all the details about the murder and where the body is. And Jeanette, um, during these cases, you know, it's not just the jurors, but it's the people watching these trials. They get really passionate, really heated. Um, do you think this is going to be one of these situations, this trial? And why, why do you think, I ask you this all the time, but what do you think it is about this that makes it so high profile and will have so many people watching? Well, you know, it's it's hard for me to tell. You know, part of me thinks if it was photo, photos, 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 am I saying photos? Photos. Yeah, sorry. All of a sudden, I feel like I couldn't say that name. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, I, I felt like I had like a brain freeze. Anyway, uh, I feel like if it was his trial, maybe we'd really, because then, oh, you'd have that, you know, the, the, the awful, horrible ex-husband um, on trial. This. I mean, maybe it's a little different. Maybe it's not because it's a woman, um, you know, the the girlfriend or what have you. Um, but I think a lot of people can relate to this because of the domestic violence aspect. Uh, well, we don't know if she was a victim. She's terrified of him. So I'm assuming there was past domestic violence, but she, she feared him. Um, so I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. Plus, Rich people, people think rich people don't have these problems. And guess what? They do. Everybody's got these problems. The tempers flaring, I don't like. Okay. I, I feel like that is not healthy. Um, I feel like some of these cases are really upsetting and they can get to you, but I feel like you have to keep it in check. Um, the Alec Murdoch case is one of those where, oh my God, I I tweet something about that and just it brings people out of the woodwork acting crazy. Um, so I, I just think people need to keep their emotions in check a little bit, sit back and watch the evidence. If it's, if it's upsetting, if you're getting that riled up about it, walk away from your keyboard and your TV screen. Um, but I think it's the fact that there is this aspect of it, you know, a pretty mom, mother of five is not supposed to be killed in her house and, and left you know, her five children left without a mom, you know, it's just, it's not supposed to happen. And, and sadly it does. 
And by the way, those five kids are with grandma, uh, Jennifer's mother, living in New York. Um, Black Widow from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, Fortis means brave in Latin, and he was such a coward. Wendy Murphy, I wanted to ask you the entire time. So he was facing a trial in 2020. I think he was supposed to be in court that morning. They find him in his car with the uh, hose connected to the tailpipe. What do you make of that behavior by him, Wendy Murphy? Well, you know, no one deserves to die. I, 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 I would never wish death on even a monster like that. I mean, I, I, I don't care about the guy, but I would rather have watched him be tried and convicted and wither in shame and face the music and watch the community come down on him and watch him rot in prison. This is my wish. I don't believe in the death penalty, even self-imposed death penalty. Um, But I do think it shows his guilty conscience. And uh, he, he didn't love her by his own admission. He wasn't distraught by um, her disappearance disappearance and i don't i don't think it's reasonable to assume that he killed himself for any reason other than guilt and perhaps concern that the evidence against him was so overwhelming and you know maybe from a cultural point of view i don't know his history or what it means to be um, a Greek man and if this was part of it. But I I know that we had a recent murder in Massachusetts um, where an Indian man um, on Christmas or New Year's Eve or, you know, during one of the holidays killed, first shot his teenage daughter to death in her own bed, then shot his wife to death in her bed and then killed himself in his his bathtub. This was in a 27-room mansion um, you know, in a, in a home worth like $6 million, they had money problems. And I think he killed himself among other, among the others he killed, uh, out of shame and that he couldn't live with anybody knowing that he was a failure at business or, you know, I don't know if this is part of how Dulos felt. Was he going to not only be found guilty of murder, but also all his dirty laundry was going to come out about how much money he owed and what a terrible businessman he was. And did he, you know, did he um, do bad deals? Did Were people going to come out of the woodwork to talk about um, how he cheated them and shamed his family? I don't know, but I don't care in the sense that I wish he didn't die, but to me, it's another thumb on the scale in favor of a fairly huge pile of proof of his guilt. Uh, Philadelphia shoulder surgeon, which is so hard to say. Uh, John, last question, then we'll get final thoughts. Do you think she uh, claims, Michelle Traconis does, do you think she claims that she too was manipulated by Fotis Doulos? People in this chat are a lot smarter than I am. I think I'm too honest to be a defense attorney, but are they going to go out there and say that? Say that uh, he... uh, you know, mentally abused her and uh, she was terrified for her life. And so she threw away these bags. So this case is going to go one of two ways. Either it's going to be a total reasonable doubt case. She's not going to testify. She's not going to say a word. The defense is just going to poke holes in the evidence and remind the jury that this is not Fotis Dulos on trial. It's Michelle Traconis 
and she won't say anything. The second way that it could go is exactly the opposite, where she is going to testify and say, I was under his thumb. He killed his wife. He threatened to kill me. I had to do what he told me to do. And so I did, but I had nothing to do with the murder. And, and I didn't know what else to do. <clears throat> that won't explain why the tenor didn't change after he died and was no longer a threat. So if I were a betting woman, I'd say this is going to be a reasonable doubt case and we're not going to hear uh, from Michelle Traconis. But that's it's early. I could be wrong. I'm wrong 50 percent of the time. This could and be uh, I'm wrong 75 percent, if not more. <laughs> but um, Jana has uh, offered uh, incredibly gracious to come on with us live tomorrow to do what Tim Jansen did for the Adelson trial to give some uh, analysis of opening statements. And uh, I don't know how much time she has, and I feel horrible uh, taking her time. But uh, as long as she can stick around and help us with that uh, tomorrow morning, we will have her on and I will stick around the rest of the time. So you can see there from Gen X Granny, STS is covering the opening statements tomorrow morning at 9.45 a.m. Eastern time. And Jeanette Levy is currently the correspondent and host for Law and Crime Network covering all kinds of high profile cases. And she's going to cover this one. Your final thoughts tonight, Anjanette. I, I'm just really interested to hear what the state says in its opening tomorrow, but more importantly, what the defense says. Um, I, I assume both. I assume the defense will give an opening. Sometimes they they hold off on that, but I'm assuming they will. Um, you know, I I hope eventually they're able to find something that's left of Jennifer for if that does bring her family some peace. Um, but. I don't know. It's just uh, those kids. I feel so bad for them. I mean, no kid that no kid should grow up without both of their parents. They're growing up without both of them. It's horrible. And Jonna, you may disagree with me, but I thought at the time um, they should never let him out on bail because look what happened. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not saying people shouldn't be let out on bail, but look what happened. I was kind of like when they let him out on bail. I was like, ooh, is that a good idea? But right. yeah. Well, that was the end of that. Um, Tiff Knox, uh, just this, I love this. Just occurred to me that we have the good Lori, Lori Hellis, and now we also have the good Wendy, not to be confused with Wendy Adelson. We've got Wendy Murphy, but Wendy spells it with a Y and Adelson with an I. Uh, Jonas Billboard, she is an attorney, an outspoken one. Her words, not mine. She's a columnist. She's a legal analyst. She does it all. She's on Fox News Channel, the Fox Business Network. She also hosts a morning show in New York's Hudson Valley, WPDH 101.5. Jonna, your closing thoughts this evening. I still think this is going to be a tough road to hoe for the prosecution because they're not trying Fotis Dulos. They're trying his girlfriend. The jury shouldn't get confused, but I am curious to see what kind of evidence is going to get put forth. Wendy Murphy, uh, she is a trailblazer, a pioneer in the, uh, in the DV world. She's also an adjunct professor of sexual violence at New England Law Boston. She was also a former visiting scholar at Harvard Law. She's been on all the television channels, all the podcasts. Uh, Wendy, by the way, Wendy, I don't know if you know this, but I have a book coming out. You don't think you get away with an entire show. There it is. It's already available for pre-order on Amazon. I think you'll love this, Wendy. It's uh, my mother cursing at me. It's real-life conversations between my mom and I. She's a Holocaust survivor, a licensed therapist. And my podcast co-host, you can scan that QR code and get your get the book. But uh, Wendy, your final thoughts: Is the world uh, falling apart before our eyes? The, this case. Um, well, wait. Before I say that, can I say I also have a book coming out in April? It's called "Oh No, He Didn't: 
It's by mm, Super Press. You can order pre-order it. And um, it's about men who took credit for women's work. Or I should say it's about women who invented and discovered and created things for which a man took credit. It's a really fun book. And I explain Wait, what's the, t- what's the title again? What's the title? Oh, oh no, he didn't. Oh, no, he didn't. You better <laughs> yeah. order that book, but order mine first, then order hers. Yeah, yeah. Mine, mine is not going to be better. It's just going to be different. Um, <laughs> and I would love to read yours, and I will get it. I um, I also have a new TED Talk out, if you don't mind some shameless self-promotion. Not at all, please. If you, if you just Google um, TED Talk Walden Ponds, Wendy Murphy, you'll find um, you'll find it. It's It's sort of similar to my book, but it's really about women's the history of women being unequal in America, how we became unequal and how we're still unequal and why we're still unequal and so forth. So it's a really important TED Talk. Thanks for letting me share that. Um, as for this case, you know, I do think that in part because Dulos is dead, um, there will be an extra urge on the part of the jury to find her guilty. That may not be fair, but I think there'll be a desire to hold someone accountable and she's the next in line. You know, Mawini might be another one, but he's sort of further down the line. I think in the hierarchy of the bad, who's the worst person? The worst one is dead. Next is Traconis, and then Mawini's third. And um, there should be somebody held accountable for Jennifer's death. And I think the jury will be predisposed to um, see the evidence against her for that reason. Now, having said all that, uh, I don't know enough about what her defense knows to be able to say, and I think, you know, the defense will raise reasonable doubt. I agree with John, it's a reasonable doubt case. And I think they will raise some doubt, but the jury's going to be instructed that to vote not guilty, they have to find their doubt to be reasonable. In other words, they can have doubt. It's okay to have doubt. But is your doubt, does it rise to the level of reasonable such that you're willing to discount the prosecution's evidence and let her walk free? I don't see that happening in this case because there is, there's too much smoke. There's nothing that points to her innocence. There's just not a lot of strong evidence that points to her guilt. And if you can't show some degree of innocence and niceness and kindness and my, my, my client is a good person, Um, you're really going to have a hard time getting the jury to care about her. And that's when you lose as a defense attorney, when the jury doesn't care about your client at all. And I don't think she's a very likable person. They're going to be hard pressed to care about her. And they're going to, they're going to feel deep feels for Jennifer and her five children. And uh, the jury is going to feel deep feels. They're going to be sitting uh, in that jury box till March 1st if the experts are right. And uh, that's when we will ultimately get a verdict by uh, a jury of our peers. Uh, Nancy Moonrush, thanks so much, Joel COE and Vasquez and Space Coast on the West Coast and all the mods. Love you, America. By the way, we have a second show tomorrow. We're doing the opening statement for then 5 p.m. Eastern time. Talking about violence again. Rachel Moran was murdered in August. They have... DNA of the suspect had no ID. They had not caught this person. But three investigators uh, who are STS best guests, they're going to be here tomorrow night. They're doing some of their own work to try to catch this guy wherever he is. That's at 5 p.m. Eastern. Until then, love you.
Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. 